0: Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 41. When you have found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, "'After I have been there, I must also see Rome.'" And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said... Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two Hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You can be seated. A lot going on in this text. A lot going on, right to say the least. Um, and uh, this is—if you're new, this is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through uh, the Book of Acts. This is one of the larger sections of Scripture that we're going to uh, cover, and so. Uh, based upon time and and also just how I want to tackle this large section of of text. I'm not going to go verse by verse through this, uh, but I hope uh, one thing I really love is actually hearing uh, the reading of the Scripture uh, with everyone in in, in its its fullness. And I hope, and and Audrey does such a good job of accentuating things that need to be accentuated and and, and that you hear and feel the text as well. And so I'm trusting the Holy Spirit in laying out all these texts before you, that He, he even in the reading, is doing something in, in your heart and my heart as well. But there are two things I want to focus on uh, this morning. One is something that Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing constantly uh, in in this book, he writes, is that he's highlighting different responses to the gospel. He's highlighting different responses to Jesus, right? And so as we've been walking through this, so if you're taking notes, you might write responses in your notes. Uh, Did you sense, as Audrey read, some of the different responses from people? And I'm going to highlight those, and we're going to walk through those. Did, Did you feel that? And then the second big, and this is more of the overarching kind of thing here in in this text, is this idea of idolatry. This idea of idolatry. And you have in this text something very obvious, right? The the goddess of Artemis, right? Or, Or Diana. And then you also... What is maybe a little bit more, I want to look at, and you have these these, these these idols that are playing or running under the surface. And so I want to look at, at both of those, and I want to look at responses as the gospel uh, attacks those and goes after those. And so let's start here with the first scene, which is verses 11 through 20, uh, the sons of Siva, right? So it, it sets up this, this first picture that, that God was doing extraordinary miracles, this is verse 11. By the hands of Paul. First and foremost, in Acts, you need to see that who is the one who is moving in power? God is, right? And he's moving through Paul, okay? So the miracles are happening because God is powerful, not Paul's powerful. That can get confusing in this text because it says that handkerchiefs and scarves, like Paul lays his hands on them and they were sent out and they had like this, this healing power. That was not because of Paul's power. That was because of God's power. That's because of the Holy Spirit moving. And so that is not a normative thing, right? Like that, that shouldn't mean we should just get a bunch of handkerchiefs and scarves and pray over them and send them out, even though that, that, that for some of you maybe who come from maybe charismatic backgrounds, Um, That that has been a practice done before. That is not a normative practice. This is just something that God saw fit in this time to do and to move through Paul in that way. And then we get an interesting scene um, with these Jewish exorcists, right? And so you have these Jewish exorcists who understand the power of God, who see the power of God being manifest in Paul and how it's delivering people, how it's setting people free. And so they're like, man, that's, that's really powerful. That really seems to work. Why don't we employ that? And so they they come across this man who obviously has an evil spirit oppressing him. And they say, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to adjure it. We're going to talk to it in the name of Jesus that Paul speaks about. Interesting method, right? Now, what does the response look at in verse 15? But the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Like, I, I just, I love the way Luke writes, right? Like, he's going, even, even in this spirit of like, these are, these are demonic forces, these are, these are evil spirits. They, in fact, are um, affirming the kingship or lordship of Jesus. They're going, listen, Jesus we know, and in fact, the Bible says that they even tremble at his name. And then they even go like one rung lower, and they go, Paul, we recognize at least But you fools, we don't know who you are. Do you see the misappropriation by these these exorcists of the name of Jesus, right? They are using the name of Jesus as a magical word without their own faith, without their own personal faith, for their own purposes, and for self-promotion, idols. For their own power, for their own self-promotion, For their own fame and for their own glory. And the evil spirits essentially laugh at them and go, we don't even know who you are. Don't fool yourself to think that this is not still happening today. The misappropriation of Jesus' name. The use of Jesus without actually having a real living relationship in faith. There are those that are obvious, right? Among us, there are those that that use the name of Jesus for uh, deceptive practices and things like that, but there are also the less obvious, the more subtle, right? The one who tack on Jesus or Christianity to their religious resume so that they don't have to feel a certain way or so that they're perceived a a certain way. Those who use Jesus or Christianity really in a, a moralistic kind of way, Right? Moralistic therapeutic deism, right? Where, where it's that they attach Jesus to, to everything and anything that, is, that, that they feel would um, make them good or right. And it's Jesus. He's, he's the one that they'll use to manipulate for their purposes. You see, these, these exorcists were completely mastered and overpowered by the evil spirits. Did you see how it says that they left? Right? Right? How did they leave after them trying to evoke or misappropriate Jesus' name on this? There wasn't freedom, was there? There wasn't deliverance? No, they, in fact, led. It says that they left naked and wounded. And Luke uses those two words very specifically. You see, trying to battle the enemy, trying to battle even idolatry to the word of, of, of choice this morning... Apart from a true relationship with Jesus, is ultimately going to leave you and I in a worse place than before. You hear me? Like trying to wage war against the things of the enemy by misappropriating the name of Jesus without actually having a relationship or faith in Christ will leave you in a worse place than before. These men run out naked and wounded. A small little scene. Highlighting, showing us, one, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, alive in people like Paul. It's powerful. But also, the warning, to not misappropriate, to misuse, to abuse, for your purposes, self-promotion, for self-glorification, to fill in your religious resume, for manipulation, the name of Jesus. And as you can imagine, the rest of this scene, the story makes its rounds in the city. And a response happens. It's in fact a positive response. Right? Notice what happens. There, there are three responses in verses 17, actually four responses in verse 17 to verse 20. And it says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And here's a response. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or worshipped. Response number two. Right? And it says, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing. Response number three. And divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. Response number four. Repentance. This idea that those who were practicing this magic or these evil things, they were coming and they were divulging, they were sharing what they were doing, and they were, in fact, burning up all these books and these things that they had been a part of to go, listen, we no longer are a part of that. We are following Christ. So there was fear, there was worship extolling, there was confessing, and there was repentance. Anytime you or I are going to turn away from idolatry, that is going to be the response. Fear, like an awe of actually who God is. You see, one of the reasons I think those exorcists, they actually went in with the manipulative purposes because they actually didn't understand who God was. There was no fear of him. There was no true knowledge that this is the God of the universe, the creator God. You don't just evoke his name or the name of his son for your deviant purposes, for your self-promotion. And then there 's this worship there 's this confession right that when we see who God is when we worship him rightly there's this confession of the struggles and the idols in our heart and then there is this repentance and and, and for them it was bringing these things and laying them before it was consuming it was it was, it was kind of a visible demonstration of, of an inner commitment right it was them going we 're no longer part of this you can burn up these books and it puts a price on them doesn 't it this is that they were they were worth what 50,000 pieces of silver? That's a lot of money. Up in smoke. They count it all his loss, right? And this is an interesting backdropper story to highlight the next section. The next section that Audrey read that's in your Bible with a man named Demetrius. Here, all of these books, all of this prophet is up in smoke because they're going, listen, we want to follow Jesus. We want to surrender to him as king. We don't longer want to use and abuse his name for our purposes. We want to worship him. And then you have Demetrius in this next section. And this next section is full of responses of chaos. Absolutely chaotic responses. And so the first thing I want us to see is, is the responses to idolatry. First, we have to see the pervasiveness or the prevalence of idolatry, okay? The pervasiveness or prevalence of uh, idolatry, okay? So Paul now is a little bit of time after this last scene. And it says in, in verse 23, And about that time arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And if you'll notice, that's a capital W, meaning this is, this is Christianity, this is the way of Jesus. This is a term we use here at, at our church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought, b- brought no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, this guy made a lot of money on this goddess of Artemis. This guy made a lot of money by fashioning these idols that represented what she stood for. And so he hears the message of the gospel and he is concerned. What is he concerned with? His prophet. He's concerned about what he holds dear. And so Demetrius stirs up dissent because this message of the gospel is attacking his prophet. And what is very interesting, most scholars believe that Demetrius actually, he he actually never heard Paul preach or present the gospel. Most scholars believe that. And so yet what we see here is that Demetrius, however, not hearing the gospel before from Paul, he actually understands the implications of the gospel. Meaning, he understands what must occur when the gospel is true in a group of people's lives. Did you pick that up? Look at it in in verse 25 through 27. This is the implication. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people saying, implications of the gospel, that God's made with human hands are not God's. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship, which is a lie, by the way. But Demetrius here understands the implication of the gospel even better than most of us. Did you hear what Demetrius says? He says, listen, well, the message that Paul is preaching, the gospel message is this, that God's God's made with human hands are not God's at all. And if he's successful, then it will undermine everything about our culture, Demetrius says. If it is true, the gospel that Paul preaches, here's the truth of it, that it displaces the need for every other lowercase g God in your life. That this God that Paul preaches is a God who will not stand in competition with any other God. Artemis or any other one. That's what Demetrius is saying. It's almost like Demetrius is a prophet. He's not, by the way. But you go 100, 200 years after this scene. The gods and goddesses, the Greek gods and goddesses, are very rarely worshipped. They, in fact, begin to disappear or become more mythological. You see, it's hard for us to understand the power of the gospel apart from seeing the prevalence and the pervasiveness of idolatry in our own lives. You see, idolaters don't know their idolaters. The word idolatry in the Bible, when we hear it in Scripture, it never comes from an idolater. Notice that Demetrius didn't go, we have this idol, we're idolaters, and we need to continue to be idolaters and worship this idol. No, they use words like this, God's made by human hands. Even Paul understands this when he's dealing with literal idols, again, in Athens. When he walks into Athens and he sees all of these idols. Notice he doesn't go, listen, you filthy idolaters. That's not what he says, is it? He walks in and he goes, you have all of these images of gods. You have all of these gods. And I even notice that you have one that says a, a, a place for an unknown god. You see, the word idolater actually was coined by Christians. To mean shadow, empty, fake, not real. An idolater is someone who would never say that. We say things like God's or, or important. You see, here is one of the things that is prevalent about idolatry is that it hides in plain sight, especially today. Like, you can't get caught up in this text and go, Oh, listen... Like, we do not worship a God named Artemis. This this God created with silver or with gold or fashioned out of wood or stone. Like, we're too modern for that, right? Our modern culture has freed us from idolatry. Oh, that's where we made one of the biggest errors. You see, yes, while we maybe don't have the silver idols or this kind or type of religiosity... And we think about idols, even the idol of Artemis, it was not the actual figure. It was the thing under the thing, right? That's idolatry. That's when we begin to understand the pervasiveness and prevalence of idols, even in our own life. That it wasn't that, that Demetrius was fashioning these silver things, and these silver things were like, whoa, that's a god. No, it's what she represented. The goddess of childbirth and chastity. She was also the goddess of wild animals and the hunt, which is kind of a weird combination to me, but it's what she represented. It's what they worshipped. It's what they held as dear. In our culture, in our times, in Christians, even our lives are no different. David Zoll, he wrote a book, um, and he had this quote in it that I've been to think through, and I I want us to read it um, together. I want to put it before you. It says, Bombarded with whole results about declining levels of church attendance and belief in God, we assume that more and more people are abandoning faith and making their own meaning. But what these polls actually tell us is more straightforward. They tell us that the confidence in the religious narratives we've inherited has collapsed. What they failed to report is that the marketplace in replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never, seen, we've never been more pious, we've never been more religious, we've never been more worshipful, if you will. Religious observance hasn't faded to pay secularization, right? We're modern, so much as it's migrated. And we've got the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. Keep that up there. Well, let me talk to the Christians in this room. How many of you even resonate with that? Like even in your your heart? Non-Christians in this room. Like you're just as religious as we are. You know that, right? Like your pursuit, your worship, your zeal toward something or someone. Yeah, maybe you don't attend church every morning. Maybe you aren't part of a community of faith like this. Maybe you would even reject Jesus, but that does not mean that you are not a worshiper. You see, idolatry, um, Tim Keller, if you want to know anything on idolatry, go, go check out Tim Keller. He's written a lot on it. He says it's anything we lean on to tell us we're okay, to satisfy us. What we live for when we're not living for Jesus, anything that is functionally more important or valuable than God, that is idolatry. You see, listen for the language of idolatry in our own hearts, even for us as Christians right we would confess and we would say i love jesus that he is king of my life yet there is still this playing tune in our hearts and our minds right if i could still have this if i could continue that if i could have this relationship if i could have whatever x is then then i'd be happy i'd be comfortable i'd be secure i'd be successful be whatever that is functional idolatry that is what idolatry looks like in our minds and in our hearts and so that is why as a faith family as a church we have this constant need to fight and battle idolatry one to another right praxis groups great right, are our small groups We get in there and we don't just talk about these platitudes and we pat each other on the back. No, we are asking the Holy Spirit to confront idols in our lives. We're asking the Holy Spirit to do a work. That is why we endeavor in the things like the spiritual disciplines, right? Not to be more pious, not to just say, hey, listen, these are just the things that we do to know God more and more. No, we do them so that there is a resistance in my heart and your heart against the idols that hold me captive. Even in Advent, even in the things that we're walking through, even in the pace that I'm walking these things through with my kids is part of that resistance, right? Every time I feel a plug to go faster, to just plow through it, I know that that's confronting an idol in my heart. You know that, right? As subtle or as massive as it may be. Right? We, and we, by and large, we can identify the large-scale ones, right? Like, even if I said, okay, what are some of the the the, 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 the idols of Dallas culture, Right? Or, or, or maybe not to use the word idols, if some of you are from, uh, to, to against that, right? Or you say, the things that are ultra important or ultimate, right? You're listening them, you're thinking them, you can, um, they're pretty easy to identify, right? Money, power, intellect, pleasure, like those are things we can see and we know, we experience, some of us participate in those, but let's bring it personal. I'm convinced, even with Demetrius here, He gathered those guys who were like him, who were making a profit. The things that hit them all personally, that they could kind of look at each other and go, okay, yeah, you get what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about? I I do think money is one of those. But it's the thing under the thing, right? It's not money. It's comfort. It's security. It's status. Or how about busyness? Progress. What's interesting, if you've been in the church any amount of time... Think 20 or 30 years ago when you used to talk to somebody and say, hey, in the church, hey, how are you doing? 20, 30 years ago, what was the answer? Fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. Now, what is the answer? How are you doing? Whew. I'm busy. Even, even in COVID, right? Like you say, even, even in the slow down, stop, hard breaks, people are still like, I'm busy. And it's not busy. Hear me. For most people, it's not busy like lamenting busyness. It's said with like a twinkle in the eye. I'm busy. What are you up to? Am I right? Have you said that? Have I said you, you bet I've said that? And you know what that does? That exposes something about me. It exposes what I value. I want you to think that I'm important and I'm making progress, that I'm advancing the work, whatever that work may be, whether it's ministry or business or family, whatever it is. Do you see that? The subtle things like busyness can be idols or politics. Looking to a person to save us. A literal, actual person in a party. Or that a person in a political party has the power to destroy us. What? What does that say about our God? The God who says, listen, I put kings in authority. I turn the streams where they say. Nothing's done outside of my hand. They're parenting. Kids, right? We live in the land of 3 foot idols, right? And they play soccer 19 days a week. I love the science fair example, right? You go to a middle school science fair and you look around and you see all these parents gloating and glowing and going, "Look what I cre- I mean what they created." Right? <laughs> Why would a parent create a 7th grader science project? Because their significance, their value, is on the success of their child. Listen, this is, this is real. Control, security, we've talked about those things as being idols. Oh, this season has exposed those. This season, I think, is, is, is abundantly appropriate and God-given for us to talk about idolatry. Even the season of COVID, but even more the season of Advent. Where they just read and lit the candle of peace, shalom. How about the idol of marriage or romance? See, this is from a non-Christian relationship therapist. A okay? non-Christian relationship therapist. Listen to what she says about marriage or relationships. She says, we come to one person, and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, give give me transcendence and mystery and all, all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. That's how some of you approach Either the thought of marriage, like if I can just have that relationship with that person, then those things will be there. Maybe that's how some of you are approaching your current marriage, your current relationship, putting the weight of salvation or hope on a singular person. Now, here's what I want you to do. Replace the words entire village with God. We so often particularly in marriage, put on the other person what only God can provide and is meant to provide to us. And in turn, we elevate them to an idol status or even the allure of the vague picture of what we think marriage should be to an idol status. You see the prevalence of idolatry I think John Calvin hit it right on the head when he says our hearts are idol factories, constantly producing these. That's what we see in Acts 19. That's what we see these people rioting over. And that's the second point. We're going to go through these really quickly. The power of idolatry and the price of idolatry. The power of idolatry is on full display here. That idols are not just psychological things, they're not just material things, but they are spiritual forces in our lives that we are called to battle. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against which spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is what we are battling when we talk about idolatry. So lest any of you think that we battle as Christians our idolatry with more moralism, with we just battle idolatry with stop doing X, that's called stoicism. Idolatry for us as believers is only combated by the power of the Holy Spirit submitted to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's only combated when we go, Jesus, you are better than anything else. You see, then it puts everything else in perspective. My kids, great, good things. Can't be ultimate. My marriage, politics, money, all of those things, when Christ is in his rightful place as ultimate, all of those things find their right and proper place. But we have an enemy who is constantly trying to manipulate and pervert those things in our lives. And the price of idolatry, is always what we see here in both texts. Nakedness, wounding, and rioting or chaos. Idols never produce. In fact, they produce the opposite of what they promise every time. The enemy's offer of freedom, the enemy's offer of security and comfort, it actually, when you go toward that idol, all of those things actually begin to deteriorate and be taken away from you. Why? Because only those things can be found in who? In Christ. But know the price of idolatry as you begin to wage war against them that there will be resistance. There will be resistance in you and there will be resistance from others. But praise God, here's what we're about to do. We're about to take the victory we have over sin, death, death, Hell and the grave. That Jesus, in facing the greatest idol, right, the greatest confrontation of all time, 2nd Colossians, Colossians 2 tells us that he disarmed and overthrew those powers by the cross of Christ. You see, here, this isn't a message of just do better. This isn't a message of moralism to just get over your idols. This is a message about Jesus. This is a message about Advent that you and I, the only way, the only hope we have in this life to actually find what we're looking for is to find that Jesus Christ is all that we're looking for. Then he's going to clarify. Then he's going to show you true freedom. Then he's going to show you true life. And so... I'm going to invite you to take this cup and this bread with me. And I appreciate you guys giving me a few extra minutes on a topic that we could unpack for about three years. Listen to me, there is no better way to think about this topic or any other than coming before Christ the broken body and the shed blood and so listen to me, at the Park Church this is the only thing that we do that is closed and what I mean by that is it's not for just members, it's, it's meant for Christians, it's meant for those of you that are Christ followers here and so as we think about our own hearts and our own lives as we think about the own idols that capture us Maybe for some of you, you're going to take communion today for the first time as actually a believer because you're going to trust in Christ instead of trusting in yourself to save. For those of you who are believers, I don't want us to take this flippantly. We're just out a religious routine, but I want us to take this thinking that this is the shed blood and broken body that gives us the ability to wage war against those idols in our lives, that calls us away from them that draws and beckons us and so let's take the broken body together the bread of christ and in the same manner jesus took the cup and he says this cup represents the new covenant which is found in his blood this is the blood of christ spilled shed for us to save us and redeem us to forgive us so let's take the cup together Church, the one fitting response after taking the broken body and shed blood of Christ is what? Worship. Let's worship God in prayer now. Father, we love you. God, thank you for sending your son who would die for us so that we might find life. God, in my heart that is constantly producing idols, it is your voice and your spirit that is louder and more powerful that shows me the way that shows me your way, and that is the way of your son, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this, you would make us and mold us more into his image this week for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.